Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a video and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Today, I'm very privileged to welcome an accomplished entrepreneur, historian, and a multifaceted individual from Pittsburgh, USA, Daniel Perez. Daniel, welcome to the show. Ash, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Uh, Daniel is the Senior Vice President of Federated Hermes, managing an equity portfolio of 25 billion. He's trained as a historian on the Soviet Union, and he's an author of three books on investment, one book on Soviet history, working on a new book on investing in the aftermath of the last decade. So, uh, Daniel, tell me, what would you say are three key milestones in your life? You know, from a, a business perspective and, and from a, 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 the career development, even personal development, the thing that I go back to over and over and over again mm-hmm. um, was my choice and interest, natural interest in, in history. Okay. And, and that has informed my decisions ever, ever since. And I had the opportunity, the great fortune to mm-hmm. pursue an interest. It was Russian and Soviet history, which very mm-hmm. specific, very narrow. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I take uh, took away from that mm-hmm. uh, a historical type of analysis and framework of analysis that I still apply in almost everything. My, my child rolls his eyes, my 16-year-old, because <laughs> my answer to almost any question that he might ask is, I start with, well, as a historian, I and yeah, no, 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 yeah. So uh, that that has been a, a really important mm-hmm. force uh, in my life, and I've been very fortunate. This may be the second or third elements mm-hmm. of it that mm-hmm. to get a, a, a good higher education and be able to pursue those historical interests, even in business. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And you know, I, when I was reading about you, I mean, I was so fascinated from an, from an academic historian to financial research. What made you make this transition and what were some of your challenges? Well, it was, uh, it was kind of difficult to live through, I have to admit, but uh, the main challenge was a business one, which is the market for Soviet studies, Russian studies, mm-hmm. heading into the uh, 90s. I entered graduate school and <clears throat> focused on the Soviet Union in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. There was plenty of demand and there right. was supply, but there was plenty of demand. Right. In the 1990s, uh, demand for people with the skills that I had in many ways in academic Soviet studies uh, plummeted. So mm-hmm. supply and demand, they're just at, at the academy was shifting towards China, towards mm-hmm. India, mm-hmm. towards uh, the Middle East, and the Soviet Union as a threat, a Cold War threat was was uh, receding. Okay. And so the there just wasn't as much demand. And I could see that in mm-hmm. doing almost a business analysis of my chosen career at the time, uh, right. uh, Russian studies, Soviet studies. And I said, well, there's there's not much future here. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to move in a, in a, a different direction. It was easy, relatively easy to make that conclusion. It was fairly difficult to go from a uh, Russian studies person to uh, a financial analyst. I did not open a, an Excel spreadsheet until I was 33 years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was competing with 21-year-olds who had mm-hmm. were fluent Excel speakers. Absolutely. And I was struggling to do the most simple Excel tasks. So that, mm-hmm. that was a challenge, I have to admit. And did you have to retrain yourself quite significantly? Uh, yeah, I've been asked that question, you know, why don't you just go to to, to B school, to business mm-hmm. school and get an MBA? I, I didn't want to. I had already spent, I had a PhD, I had postdocs, I had plenty of degrees, uh, but I, I didn't want to go back uh, and uh, go back to school. I'd spent 
shall I say, too much time in school. Uh, and mm -hmm. I, I felt that wouldn't make a lot of sense. I did go through a credentialing program, mm -hmm. uh, the CFA program uh, at the time, but I that was as far as I was prepared to do. It was much more of an act of will. I just okay. simply said, okay, I'm going to learn this myself, do this. I do have certain skills, the writing and communication skills and mm -hmm. uh, analysis skills and hopefully historical analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I didn't I didn't have the stomach to go back to business school, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. So let's talk about your, you know, first journey as an investor. We've just spoken a little bit about your historical journey. But you know, when I was reading about you again, and I quote this, in a profession devoid of historical sensibility, knowing the past is a form on innovation and a distinct competitive advantage. Help me understand this phrase. Yeah, there, there are lots of examples of it. And I, I think it's almost singularly the thing that's helped me in my career in, in, in investing. Mm -hmm. I went from a career and a community and a mindset, which is all about understanding in many ways, uh, the present in terms of the past mm -hmm. to a community finance and investing which has no conception of the past, right. no conception of change over time, mm -hmm. uh, no analytical framework to understand the past. It's a mm -hmm. static environment. Uh, the University of Chicago offers certain analytical tools, which are right. all about right now. Right. And uh, most of the people who go into the investment world aren't interested in how things got to where they are now. They're only interested mm -hmm. in what they are now and what they're going to be five minutes from now. Mm -hmm. And once I'd settled into uh, the investment career, I realized I, I, I am among a community uh, of very intelligent, very mm -hmm. capable, well-meaning people, mostly mm -hmm. self-interested, grant you, but, right. but uh, capable people, but they're absolutely unaware of where they came from or business models that existed in the past mm -hmm. uh, or paradigms of human behavior and business development and investing behavior mm. that have existed in the past. And there are numerous examples. Sure. If you do look at, for instance, electronic vehicles, which are the all the rage, yeah. uh, and you would assume that the business challenge faced by investors in trying to understand these companies is brand new. Mm -hmm. It's it's not, excuse me, it's not new at all. Correct. The, the, there have been not only electric vehicle Mm -hmm. uh, moments in the past, mm -hmm. uh, the first generation of vehicles were were electric, yeah. not internal combustion. Mm -hmm. But there have been similar examples of a technological development in which everyone piles on, and there are winners and losers, and good investment decisions and bad investment decisions. And you mm -hmm. can learn from those uh, examples in the past. I mm -hmm. think it would uh, help any investor trying to figure out the EV phenomenon right mm -hmm. now. Should look at. A, the EV phenomenon in the past, but mm -hmm. other episodes in the past of uh, technological breakthroughs and uh, changes in human behavior associated with them. Wow. Wow. And, you know, one would have thought that when you do private equity investment or, or you know, investment in the markets, uh, there is a lot of data available about what is happening historically. You know, if, if one country is arming up or if one country's, you know, uh, got other serious political challenges. And I don't know if there are trends available to be able to link those trends to the financial markets. Well, you know, the long scope of history, you know, mm -hmm. companies that are have 
the wind in their sails mm -hmm. in terms of uh, the economy. It's hard to ignore China and India, uh, and uh, they were not significant players in modern finance X mm -hmm. number of decades ago, but now they absolutely are. Right. So that, uh, again, having a historical sensibility of, of knowing, listen, the 20th century, and this is particularly relevant for investors based mm -hmm. in the US, the mm -hmm. 20th century was the US century. Absolutely. And it's too easy for American investors and analysts to mm. assume that would continue mm. indefinitely. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Mm -hmm. But if you look back, you see how the 19th century was the British century mm. and the 18th century to some extent, 17th century were France and before mm. that was mm. Spain. Right. And is the China the 20, the driver of mm. the agenda in the 21st century mm. and India? Mm. So the, the, uh, uh, you the tool, the benefit that history provides is allowing you to escape your own framework and to right. see it from, from outside. Amazing. Okay. And uh, if you were just if I go, uh, as a follow-up question, how do you manage to leverage this historical perspective uh, to manage equity assets? You know, it's it, it it can be a difficult in a practical sense. It's certainly the framework mm -hmm. intellectually, but if you are looking at an investment of two similar companies, say two telecommunications companies, mm -hmm. you know, you really have to take. Uh, uh, there are two dominant telecommunications companies in the mm -hmm. United States. Uh, you have to <laughs> take in, into account their current status, their plans, management, cash flows, et cetera. Looking right. back at what happened 100 years ago may not be uh, directly relevant, mm -hmm. but uh, we have really implemented in terms of the investment philosophy, in the case mm -hmm. of the, the assets that we manage, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's dividend focused. And that is very, very historically oriented. Mm -hmm. You're uh, looking at how businesses, public and private, right. every business, including mm -hmm. the, the brand called you mm -hmm. and Ash's business is mm -hmm. based upon cash flows, present cash flows and future Correct. cash flows and expectations Correct. of future cash flows. Correct. And uh, that's a, a very uh, uh, established over the last century form of mm -hmm. analysis, but it's not very popular. It wasn't very popular during the internet bubble. It's not very popular mm -hmm. now in the US with SPACs and mm -hmm. with um, the electronic vehicle phenomenon. And so we are applying what we think is a historically almost universal Mm -hmm. For the last 5,000 years of, of civilization and business in every form of present value of cash flows, even though the math was only worked out about 100 years ago, absolutely. to me, it is a historically based form mm -hmm. of investing. And we're applying that to companies that are available in, in the stock market. That's dividend, that's dividend focused investing. Mm -hmm. There are times when that's out of favor. But there, there, are, it, it's there are times when it's in favor, and it's certainly very clear and uh, um, uh, crisp way of communicating to clients. Here's how we're investing. It's applied to modern companies, but the format of investing itself is very traditional. Something your grandfather, or grandmother, or great grandparents, or five generations before would recognize, not necessarily in terms of the stock market, mm -hmm. but just in terms of businesses. What is land worth? It's right. worth the 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 yield the crops that you can get off of it Good. what is a business worth the cash flows that you can receive from it whether that's a business 100 years ago business now or a business uh, 100 years from now you know you said it so well and i, I go back to uh, what my grandmother used to tell me and i believe that's the same in china old conventional wisdom was invest in gold and land because these two things will always uh, serve you well 
I, I, the land part, I do not disagree at all. And okay. the reason is because you can do a discounted cash flow analysis of the land, of the mm. rents, uh, of the crops. Mm. It's a business. Mm. Gold is different. It's a hedge yep. uh, because gold does not produce anything. Now, I know gold is particularly popular as an asset in India, uh, above and beyond investment purposes. It's, okay. a extre it's extremely popular. It's mm. culturally rooted. So I can see that. Uh, I, I um, understand the allure of, of gold, but I do categorize it as a hedge mm. against uh, other currencies uh, declining. Mm -hmm. It does have some industrial uses, and in, in India, it is significant cultural significance. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, for me, there's a difference. Land is productive. Businesses are productive. Uh, an investment in a, a company, a business is productive. Uh, gold is a hedge against something going wrong as opposed mm. to uh, things. So you, maybe you have, want to have both, uh, but I think they, they really serve very different functions. I agree with you. So, you know, uh, you manage a, a portfolio of $25 billion. Uh, what is your investment philosophy and which industry groups do you focus on? So we have to go through the existing rules of the SEC and their mm -hmm. distribution partners. There's just a, a financial community. So you have mm -hmm. to state... Uh, uh, what you're doing in terms that everyone else will accept you. So I can talk about being a historian mm -hmm. and I can talk about uh, dividend this, dividend that and everything. But when we, we go to market, it's, it's in categories that are approved uh, legally by regulatory authorities and by mm -hmm. distribution partners. So we talk about equity income, the equity income. It's okay. basically dividend investing. Okay. Uh -huh. uh, and so that, that is the, the, the philosophy. And is, as you consider the US market, it's a non-dividend market. So that's mm. what makes us distinct. The yield of the U.S. stock market is about one and a half percent, extremely okay. low. Mm. The uh, dividend payout ratio of the major companies in the U.S. market is only about 40 percent, 35, 40 percent. Mm. That includes some you know, very large, important companies that don't pay dividends at all. Right. Um, so it's a I'm not going to call it a boutique investment strategy because it's too historically rooted, too widespread, too well known to call it a boutique strategy. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the United States, dividend investing this manner of investing has been out of favor for about three decades. If you look at the math of when it became hard to be a dividend investor in the US stock market, it's about three decades ago. Mm -hmm. So we've been doing for two of those three decades what has been hard to do. And that has led to our business. It turns out there, there are plenty of investors, plenty of customers who do want to apply this Call it old-fashioned approach to new mm -hmm. companies, but this old uh, to new and old companies uh, apply this this approach and get a check, the dividends from their investments on a regular basis, mm -hmm. and so that that has been our niche for a while. Now, during that time, many other investors are just happy to chase internet stocks or, or Correct. Correct. Uh, electronic vehicle stocks, and they do very well from a straight capital appreciation perspective. There are no dividends yeah. involved. Correct. And that's fine. Mm. Uh, there's plenty of room in markets for disagreement, but we will continue mm. to focus on equity income, focus on, on uh, dividends for uh, our clients. Fascinating. So I'm going to ask you one more question on, 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 the, on the equity part and then move to your books. Sure. Uh, and this question is about the millennials and the Gen Zs. Mm. You know, they are the people who are who have started to inherit the earth and are now gradually changing things around for all of us. My question to you is, in the world that you are in, which is investment, how are the millennials and the Gen Z beginning to change your world? 
Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. And I, I'm going to have to give a, a bad answer, which is okay. I would like to say uh -huh. that they're going to come around to my view of the world, okay. but there's scant evidence of that. Okay. Uh, so I'm a baby boomer. I'm the last year of the U.S. baby boom. I was born in 1964. Hmm. And uh, I, I sort of identify with that group. And uh, But it's very clear that in the definitions of business mm -hmm. and what they consider important for valuation and approaches to investing, mm -hmm. that they're, they're quite different, uh, the up-and-coming generation. I think that's one of the reasons why in the U.S. the dividend investing is somewhat of a, um, uh, a minority, meaning uh, not as common, not dominating hmm. a form of, of investment because the younger generations are more comfortable holding stocks that don't pay dividends. They've just come of age with that. They're more comfortable making big bets on something new. Hmm. Uh, now, maybe as they'll age, they'll change. Hmm. But for now, uh, I, I have to admit, uh, you know, as even though I'm making a play as a historian, mm -hmm. and this is where, again, my son's eyes rolls and stop saying that. Mm -hmm. As a historian, I believe they will come around to understanding that certain things are recurring and the businesses have to ultimately have cash flows in order mm -hmm. to be successful. Uh, for now, you know, a good part of the U.S. stock market supported by that generation of investors right. has a different view, and uh, they are uh, more intrigued by the technology. They're more intrigued by just the share price, and they don't care about distributions. They're happy to just sell shares, capital mm -hmm. gain, and just sell the shares. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not illegal. It's yeah. not immoral. Yeah. It's yeah. not yeah. Well, it's, it's a different approach. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, they are not as uh, convinced about the need to have distributable cash flows, dividends from the mm -hmm. equities mm -hmm. as perhaps prior generations. We'll see whether that lasts. But that I, I'll admit that's been a challenge, frankly. I agree. I agree. So then now let's move to your books. Um, you know, first tell me about, you know, I was again reading about you. You have done a study on the Soviet Union, on the Soviet effort to promote atheism. Uh, <laughs> tell me about this because, you know, I was hearing some other uh, authors' books and they again seem to say that they, the Soviets actually promoted atheism like a religion. Yes, that's it. You got it right. You just summarized my book. It took me okay. 10 years to say what you just said in two seconds. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, well done. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had to spend the 10 years to understand that two second summary. Mm -hmm. So uh, as I said, I was trained as uh, the very, very late Cold War, the Reagan era Cold War. And uh, my generation of students going through graduate school, mm -hmm. we worked through the 20s and 30s. I was very fortunate to be in, uh, from a historical perspective, mm -hmm. uh, to be uh, in uh, the former Soviet Union and in the Russia in the early 1990s when I had access to Communist Party archives and archives that were formally closed mm -hmm. to Western uh, researchers and historians, but there was chaos reigning and the, the archives were basically open. So I was able to get in, do my work, write my, finish my dissertation, publish it as mm -hmm. a book. And it was about the Soviet effort to dramatically transform a society very quickly. Wow. And what they found was it's really hard to do that mm -hmm. without reapplying the traditional forms of behavior mm -hmm. that you're basically trying to replace. So mm -hmm. the, in the very first years of the Soviet uh, uh, government, their goal naively was, we'll just get rid of religion and everyone mm -hmm. will be content without it. And what they quickly found was that's 
That's not working. And instead, they create a structure of Mm -hmm. atheism that strikingly, but not very surprisingly, Mm -hmm. looks a lot like a religion. Now, it wasn't a very successful religion. It didn't last. Mm -hmm. But they had to replace rather than get rid of because getting rid of, you know, offering nothing in place of something just Mm -hmm. wasn't wasn't working. So you had in the book is a description of um, uh, Soviet atheism as a as a quasi bureaucratic form of religion. Fantastic. So uh, I'm going to now move to uh, the last segment of our conversation, which are some questions for you personally. So Dan- Daniel, you know, successful author, investment manager, historian, from where you stand today, as you look back and as you look ahead, what does success mean to Daniel? Boy, uh, that's a that's an interesting question. I, uh, you know, it's difficult not to be kind of egotistical about something like mm-hmm. that. But I was raised in a context, but you know, my parents and friends where education mattered a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am, uh, the fact that I'm able to sustain a writing career mm-hmm. is, uh, is really important to me. And it was important to my my parents have both passed away, but it, it would have been very important to them to know okay. that as well. Mm-hmm. And so that that matters uh, uh, a lot to me that I am a, I'm not really an academic, but I have an, I have an article coming out in, in a purely academic journal in, wow. in uh, a few months. I'm very, you know, that took a lot of effort, I have to admit, sure. at this stage in my life, mm-hmm. in a Russian history journal. And uh, so I'm very pleased with having done that and, and being able to write. Uh, it's not, uh, I'm not writing a, a, a million seller books and I'm not going to get the Nobel Prize in economics, mm-hmm. but uh, the ability to write, whether it's on Russia uh, or to write about uh, financial history or finance to me has been, uh, for me, an important measure of success uh, uh, above and beyond just, you know, say the day job as it were. Fabulous. And a follow-up question to that is who or what inspires you? You know, I'm still I'm still inspired by great writing mm-hmm. and great communication, crisp communication. Okay. In the age of Twitter, <laughs> you see this or Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, a well-written post on my circle of friends on Facebook really, you know, brings a smile to my face or a, mm-hmm. a uh, Twitter's dangerous, but Twitter is, uh, if you can uh, do it in, and without being too snarky and sarcastic, mm-hmm. uh, is a, a forum for crisp communication. You have to be crisp on the internet because there's just not uh, a lot of space. Right. Uh, so, you know, that, uh, that continues to be uh, uh, sort of an inspiration for me to, uh, to work in, in that realm. Uh, and I, I have, you know, a circle of friends who are uh, very involved, and I, I try to be as involved as I can in, in my community. I'm at that mm-hmm. stage, making the transition to giving back, mm-hmm. and the the people around me who are ahead of me in giving back are the ones I'm I'm trying to emulate uh, as as much as possible. I'm very fortunate to be in that position. Fascinating. So now, time for two more questions. Sure. Um, my next question is on failure. Now, this question is more relevant for people from my part of the world, which is in Asia, because I've often said that parents in India or, or China don't teach children it's okay to fail. And that manifests itself in behavior patterns. So you suddenly see Indians running, want to be first everywhere, et cetera, et cetera. Yet we fail all the time. Mm-hmm. My question to you, Daniel, is what have been some of your learnings from some of your mistakes? 
Yes. Yeah, so I, I did ha that transition. My transition from academia to finance was mm -hmm. difficult. Okay. It had setbacks, failures. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it was, it was, I, within academia and within my training and upbringing, which was not unlike what you just described common in India or, or China, where I was expected to excel academically and then become a professor, which basically I was on the path to doing. Mm -hmm. uh, I decided to leave that, but I was not trained for or prepared mm. for working in business. And it took a great deal. And it wasn't just about learning Excel. It mm. was about ego and teamwork Correct. and working with others and picking your fights. Mm. <laughs> Academics pick everything as a fight and everything yeah. is, a, is a big fight. It's just mm. not worth it. Mm. And in business, you, you have to be much more judicious. Learning that it's part of like getting married as well, mm -hmm. you know, with spouses, right. you have to learn to compromise and so forth. So uh, that trend, and I got married right at the time that I was making the transition from wow. uh, egotistical academic to entry level business analyst. Mm. So that was a very, very uh, humbling experience mm. uh, and having to learn to that you can be wrong, that you shouldn't, you know, don't speak first. You don't. Mm -hmm. You don't know the answer to this question. Mm -hmm. Don't fake mm -hmm. it, etc. Uh, it took took a number of years and was, uh, I think, you know, we'll say it's a character building experience. But you're right; it's probably not a character building experience that I was used to in my upbringing, mm -hmm. or that you were, um, uh, the the people that you're referring to in uh, in certain cultures. And we have the same same kind of uh, culture of of hyper excellence. Uh, uh, here mm -hmm. uh, in certain segments of the population as well mm -hmm. in the U.S. And the best thing that can happen to those people is is some failure. And it, I think it creates tools of understanding, self-understanding mm -hmm. that are very, very useful later on. Plus the just the practical tools of having to cooperate on teams and work on teams, which is uh, you know standard in business practices now. Mm -hmm. And that's not how individual... Uh, academic stars are are trained, and that's a shame. They should be more, much more oriented toward teamwork. Fabulous. I want to thank you. I mean, this has been such an incredible learning experience for me. I haven't come across anybody so far who is a, a historian that for Russia and now runs a $25 billion portfolio and is writing another paper in an academic journal. So more power to you. Thank you again, and I look forward to staying in touch. Ash, thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website, www.tbcy.in, to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.